Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I talked to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about Milibandism, welfare and the fate of Nick Bowles. Then I talked to Ian Stebman about the Dangleway and London transport. And finally, Sophie McBain, Ian and I talk about a future without antibiotics. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. We're going to talk mostly about Labour this week. So let's start off first with Raph. You wrote a piece um, about the kind of what's the big idea. And your thesis essentially is that there is now a, a defining kind of project that Ed Miliband has been on his mountaintop thinking about. Um, and you mentioned, so tell us about what, what the kind of three planks of that are. Yes, well, essentially the the, the criticism of, of Ed Miliband has always been that you know, he sort of got the job by accident and, and the, they, the sort of Labour went down to the leader shop and came back with the wrong size Miliband and there was all sort of trade union bosses yeah. stitched it up. And then ever since then, it's just been a series of desperate, disjointed tactical manoeuvres and, and playing off factions to try and hold the, the whole thing together. I, I don't dispute that there has been an element of that because when he, he got the job, obviously he... He didn't have a base in the party and he was in quite a weak position. So he's been forced to make a lot of compromises. But the argument in the in the piece is that all along there was a much more there has been a much more consistent, coherent agenda, a view of what he wanted to do that was actually discernible in what he was saying in 2010 and even before. And that there's a sort of a long thread of analysis, what he says is wrong with Britain, what he thinks needs to be done. There's there's two elements to that. One is historical, saying that uh, there was a there's a, a sort of uh, this broad ideological thread through history, starting with a sort of post-war consensus, uh, going into the 70s, which is sort of interregnum, where where the old model has broken down, and no one really knows what comes next. Thatcher breaks through with Thatcherism, um, and the sort of deregulated pro-market ideology. A lot of the sort of Milibandites, as I call them, would take the view that New Labour and Blairism was essentially a surrender to Thatcherism, or too much of a surrender to Thatcherism, not entirely so. Uh, and that the financial crisis marks a sort of a cut-off point in that. And so we're now back in one of these interregnum times where everything's up for grabs, and that actually 
the opportunity is there for a, for a complete sort of rewriting of the ideological script, which says, actually, we don't have to kowtow to market forces anymore. Uh, politics can be on the side of ordinary people coming at it from a more left perspective about sort of reforming markets, fixing markets, rehabilitating the idea that government can be on your side. And, and then some of the ideas that he brings to that are these things like um, pre-distribution, which is a horrible word, but essentially means actually changing the structures of the economy so that instead of just sort of cre skimming off a bit of revenue from the winners in a boom and paying it down at the bottom as sort of compensation because you know, society is terribly unequal and we feel mm. sorry for you, you actually um, either you provide childcare or you, you know, uh, provide incentives for employers to pay better wages, uh, you look at skills and education, you do the things that actually open up opportunity sort of systematically in the economy rather than just using conventional tax and spend and letting otherwise the sort of ultra-liberal economic mechanism drive people apart, which history suggests is what it's done. I mean, there's a lot of words in the essay, so I'll stop talking there, but that's, that's the, the outline of, of what I've said. And, I mean, you were on Newsnight last night talking to Philip Collins of the Times, and his criticism of this whole project is that it's all very well to have a systemic analysis, but where does that translate into policies? Um, and, George, you know, Labour are, what, eight points ahead in the polls, mm. latest thing, um, you know, they're still riding that high from the energy price freeze. Where, how confident does sort of Team Miliband feel about the tra trajectory of its travel? On the polling, they are quite bullish because what you've seen since 2010 is a large transfer of left-leaning Lib Dems to Labour and at the same time of right-leaning Tories to UKIP. Um, as you'll probably have some who will go back to, to the Lib Dems before 2015 and you'll probably have some UKIP supporters who will go back to the Tories. I mean, you certainly will, but are they going to go back in significant enough numbers for the Tories to pull ahead of Labour? They don't think so. Um, what's interesting is I mean, both parties are quite confident at the moment, which is, which, is, which is quite rare. I mean, there is this faith the Tories seem to have that something will happen, something they'll, you know, they'll, something, they'll be able to pull something out of the bag. Labour, the Labour vote will suddenly shrink down to you know, just, just over sort of 31, 32%. Um, well, I find this quite interesting because we had this conversation that sort of framed around the kind of, you know, what's Labour's big idea? But actually, I'm really interested in what, what's the Tories' big idea for what a second-term Tory government does? I mean, exactly. are this there is, any policies? And this is very interesting that the, some of the dissenters from what Cameron is trying to do, I mean, obviously you have the, the sort of, as it were, swivel-eyed hard right that just hate Cameron for all sorts of reasons. But also some of the, you know, in quotes, modernising Tories are very worried that, in the strategy they've got at the moment, devised by Linton Crosby, which is a very hard, it's not entirely a core vote strategy, but it's essentially saying hammer home the issues that the polling shows people care about, you know, immigration and crime, just shore that up. And it, there's evidence that that gets you so far. But what a lot of the, the sort of more thoughtful Tories are saying is that's a strategy for just scraping up to the finish line and maybe getting your fingernails over it one micrometer ahead of Labour. It's not. It, it, do, it doesn't do anything for you if you then win, and actually, ultimately, you know, you're not, you don't won't have a strategy for government when that happens. And what's more, in the meantime, all your policy is just sort of weaponized campaigning policy. It's not actual policy. So going on about sort of benefit tourists wrecking the NHS, you know, that's a that's a, a campaign message. It's not actually an account of how you fix the NHS, realistically. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Yeah, I find it fascinating that the same commentators who are so kind of 
appalled at the idea that Miliband might pursue the 35% strategy, you know, trying to just get scrape home and cover it, they have no problem with the Tories essentially doing the same thing. Um, but that is relevant to the election campaign because the leader this week talks about this, this phrase, shrink the offer, mm. they're going to have to... So we're already beginning to see, George, that the next, the way the next election is shaping up is not. It's not going to be a grand, expansive giveaway election, is it at all? No, it's not. But I think both parties have acknowledged that there are fundamental problems with the economy and the states uh, that were revealed by the crisis, um, and the division that exists in the in the Labour office at the moment, I'd say, is between those who wants a sort of modest incrementalist manifesto that says, look, here's how we'll you know, improve living standards. Here's our offer on the living wage. Here's our offer on energy prices. Here's our offer on, on rail fares. And, so. and those who want Miliband to do something much more ambitious, which is to radically devolve power down from Whitehall to uh, reorient um, services like the NHS towards prevention rather than just cure, because they say, actually... If you want to improve public services while also accepting that you're going to have to still cut spending, you have to you have to reform them in more imaginative ways than than the Tories are doing. This is a, a central strategic dilemma for Labour, I think, and, and George is absolutely right because the when you say that the sort of Labour are confident, a, a, a small group of people in the leader's office are confident on the polling. I think a lot of Labour MPs are confident that they can win. Um, but not necessarily that it will. They'll have a massive mandate to do the sorts of things that Ed Miliband is talking about. Um, and the the problem, you know, when I, you know, going back to the essay that I've written, they, the, the the overarching idealistic sort of Milibandist vision, you know, it it supposes that it's going to be a transformative election next time that you'll you'll be able to say to people, look, everything is obviously just going in completely the wrong direction. We need to just mm. a, a total to take a totally different approach. Now, there are two issues with that. First is, what if people just don't feel that way? If the economy is growing and, okay, wages might not be keeping pace, but there'll be a credible claim to say it's been really tough, but we've turned the corner, there's light at the end of the tunnel. For goodness sake, don't turn back now. And then on top of that, if you're selling a big transformative vision, you have to be a really good salesman because it's a risk. It's always a risk to say, let's do things completely differently. And no one can pretend that Ed Miliband has demonstrated himself to be the most charismatic salesman in politics for a generation. And so the sort of shrink the offer thing, I think, is it's not just a sort of cynical uh, incrementalism. I think some of it is born from realism about how credible can Ed Miliband be as, you know, presenting himself as the sort of let sunshine win the day, hopey changey, transformative candidate. He might just not be up to that. But there's also the problem, I mean, you referenced this, this idea that he could get into power and then, you know, we'll remember the kind of Peter Bones with almost nostalgic affection because there will be a large section of the Labour left that will just not be reconciled to having to cut spending in, in all kinds of ways. Um, before we move on to talking a, bit, a little bit about welfare, I just want to ask you, tell me what happened to poor old Nick Bowles, George? Well, yes, I mean, poor old Nick Bowles. I mean, he made a rather interesting speech to, to Bright Blue, which is a sort of liberal conservative group, and basically said, you know, David Cameron's modernisation detoxification strategy has failed, and people still won't vote for us just because we're Tories. They might like what we're saying, but they can't stand the messenger. And his proposal. That's what CJ in the West Wing said it's the worst kind of gaffe because we've accidentally said something that is true. <laughs> so, but that, but presumably that is exactly what the leader's office did not. No, and, and a rather difficult PMQs yesterday gave Miliband some ammunition and he, he was beaten by Cameron, but it would have been even worse um, had Bowles not, not made that intervention. I mean, Bowles, 
Bowles is a new party as well. Yeah, a new party. So not, you know, he he actually is one of the Tories who was cheerleading before for the idea of a Tory Lib Dem pact in 2015. He's now said, I misjudged the Lib Dems, they're still a status party. So he's proposing the resurrection of something called the National Liberal Party, which existed as um, an affiliate of the Conservative Party until 1968, which to me seems like a distraction from the much bigger duty that always a task that always have of just detoxifying their brand i don't think creating but your theory was this might be able to nip off a yeah. few kind of david laws jeremy brown I, yeah of... i think the, the problem that you have here and this is going to be fascinating over the next year or so is that not a lot of what yeah the, a lot of the core modernization stuff that, that cameron did in opposition uh, was was sort of self-evidently when you look at the polls the sorts of things they had to do but they've, they've convinced themselves that they're the only people that can do it and the, the problem that you're now having is that actually the, the individuals involved, particularly Cameron himself, has his own very special toxicity, which isn't about being hard Tory right. It's about essentially being of a class, of a background that, make, that entirely reinforces the idea that the, the Tories aren't on your side and they're not really people like you. So you have this strange problem that you know, while he was trying to decontaminate one side of his party, that side of his party that has a criticism of him wants to decontaminate him. And so no one can agree on actually what the best kind of modernisation is. And the question of, you know, is David Cameron actually an asset to his party or, a, or an encumbrance is, is very interesting. And, you know, we'll, we'll see over the next year whether his personal ratings start to look like a, a, an obstacle to, he to currently, Tory Am I right in saying, George, that he's currently polling ahead of the party? He's more popular than the party. He he's is. certainly more popular than Ed Miliband. Yeah, and... And what Tories say is you don't just look at the approval ratings, don't just look at Miliband and Cameron's personal ratings, because that just tells you whether people think Ed Miliband's doing a good or bad job as Labour leader. What you need to look at is the question um, on who do you think would be the best prime minister? And on that, Cameron still has an 11-point lead. Whereas what Labour will say in response to that is... If you ask people who do you think would do the best job of being prime minister, they will always say the person who is prime minister yeah. because they he's he's done it. They see him, they think who's the prime minister, and the best way to look prime ministerial is to be prime minister. It's to stand in front of a big door saying ten yeah, next to little exactly. marry the cat. Um, just to quickly finish off, I just wanted to talk about this this welfare one because I, I think there's a kind of interesting story behind the story. So, the Telegraph had a column by Mary Riddell and a front page that both said in various different ways. We're going to change benefits for under 25s. We're going to scrap job seekers allowance. We're going to try and focus more on training. That was how it was sold in Mary Riddell's column. The front page said, we'll scrap benefits for under 25s, say Labour. It then was traced back to an IPPR report, which they obviously had advanced sight of. Um, how did this happen, George? And are Labour going to cut benefits for under 25s? Well, what happened is that IPPR obviously briefed their, their new report to, to Mary Riddell, who wrote quite a thoughtful column about how Labour is thinking, you know, how can we solve this problem of a million uh, young people not in education, em employment or training, um, and, and as an option, um, they would remove um, benefits from those who aren't in training or searching for a job, which might not be very many people. Um, Rachel Rees was going to sort of give a formal response to this in a speech, the Telegraph spun it as Labour pledging to cut benefits for all 25-year-olds, which was an option that was never on the table, you know, not even in the IPPR reports. And, and what it showed, is, as you, you pointed out on, on, on Twitter yesterday, is that you know, the, this is the peril of, of briefing a story to a writing newspaper, because inevitably the spin they're going to put on it and, and the most 
news newsworthy line they can get is is labor u-turn on benefits um and as then they also found this with- idea about it puts more pressure on cameron to go through with the idea of scrapping housing benefit which those pesky lib dems are you know yes. you know lovers of the scrounge estate there was a from doing. There, there was also though i i think a lesson for labor here because but yeah, it obviously didn't come out the way that the leader's office might have preferred, but the speed with which they had to go, this is nothing to do with us, we wash our hands of it, don't know what was going on here, nothing to see here, move along, move along. Well, okay, maybe they felt tactically they had to do that, but the reality is if Labour, you know, it's a think tank report with some stuff in it, if Labour cannot engage with that and say, you know, we have to at least try and meet the electorate halfway in terms of what they think about what's going on in the welfare state, they're going to have real difficulty having a credible manifesto on this stuff. I mean, they, they've they done scrap the bedroom tax. That was a big, juicy bone that they gave to people who just think the Tories are wicked slashes of the welfare state. Um, the idea is that might cut them some slack to say, now can we actually do some stuff that but swing voters want to hear? And actually, it's a very short yeah. half-life in politics, doesn't yeah, it? So clearly. I think people are already voters, yes, clearly. Have, have, have kind of, like you said, banked that, and then they now want more. But that's the, I mean, that is Labour's central challenge on welfare, isn't it? It has to face two ways. It has to not alienate its core vote, who who feel that you know, the that evil Tories are coming. Sorry, to sorry, sorry to drop It's not. I qualify that. It's not really core vote. It's the activist base of the party because a lot of the voters. Mm-hmm. Um, actually feel quite strongly about this. I mean, this is why George Osborne goes after it so hard. It's prizing a bit of the Labour core vote, sort of, you know, working class people in work who resent their neighbours getting benefits. Mm. That's Labour core vote that is losing heart with Labour, which is a big problem. But it's the party with the card-carrying activist base who really hate that stuff. And that's it's a subtle distinction, but that makes it even more problematic for Labour. Yeah, exactly. No, I was going to say between that and between the fact that they know they've got a huge problem on economic credibility, this kind of thing that they always want to kind of the line that you will always see Rachel Reeves, Chekhov Moon, all the kind of coming out going about you know about the idea that Labour can be trusted with the economy because they know that that's a that's a big kind of problem for them, it's a sore spot. Um, well, in that case, I think we'll probably I think we probably delighted the listeners long enough, so I'll leave it there. Thank you, there, um, George and Raf. I'm joined by um, Raphael Bear and Ian Seven to talk about transport in London. Um, we're going to talk both about, and um, we, first of all, I will apologise to people who don't live in London. We have something big coming for you next week, which I can't talk about yet, but um, we will make it up to you. First of all, I wanted to talk about the Dangle Way, which yeah. I'm not sure that's its official name, Ian. But um, It's the Emirates K- Airline is the official way. They like to brand it as if it's a uh, an actual sort of flight but no, it's a dangly cable car. You went on it last week, am I right? I did, for the second time ever. Where does it go? goes from... It goes from North Greenwich, the O2 Arena, to Royal Victoria Docks, where it, where I guess the Excel Centre is a conference centre, and that's the most useful thing there. But really, it doesn't reconnect anything that any two people would be going between, um, as has been proven. By... So, um, Snipe London put in an FOI request, and it found out, am I right, that four people were regularly using it? Yeah, it has... Uh, weekly traffic is something like 20,000 people, but only four of those people are people who can be defined as regular commuters. That means they take at least five journeys a week, which uh, sort of triggers a discount on the fares on your Oyster card. Um, and it's pretty much been, apart from the Olympics, it, it was open for the Olympics last year. Apart from those four weeks, it has com- consistently uh, come under expectations and uh, projections of how many passengers it would have. Um, it's just a complete failure, really. So my question, Raph, is why doesn't anyone get upset with Boris Johnson about that? 
Well, the reason they might get upset is presumably because it costs quite a lot. I think it's sixty million. Am I right? Uh, yeah, twenty-four million of which has had to be paid for by the London taxpayer uh, after Boris explicitly promised that Emirates would pay for all of it. Yeah. So why aren't people more cross with Boris? Well, first of all, there is a sort of a Teflon element to to Boris. Uh, I don't want. To, I wouldn't want to get too sort of conspiratorial about this, but I think the media institution that would be most likely to foment a kind of anti-Boris we want our money back kind of backlash is the standard and the standard is not it's very, not a Boris bashing it's newspaper it's not exactly it? a Boris bashing a... newspaper let's, let's be let's be honest about that and uh, that has been the case for a while um, so I just think it hasn't sort of cut through yet as an issue I think there is a danger for Boris here uh, that um, there's that the I mean he, he's his flagship as, as it were I'm going to mix my transport metaphors now um, project was you know the, the bringing back the Routemaster buses which he he did and it cost quite a lot it hasn't doesn't doesn't made a great difference to actually how good London bus services mm. are so as a sort of cost efficient way of making the London transport network work better I doubt that that spreadsheet looks very good. Um, he did get rid of the bendy buses though, which I, I think must have been responsible for ninety percent of all bus fraud. The number of people who got on the middle door and didn't bother tapping yeah, it. Yeah, but I, I mean, one of the main reasons that Boris cited for getting rid of the bendy buses is that they cause accidents with cyclists crashing into them. And funnily enough, now that you have HGVs killing cyclists left, right, and centre, he's quite on that issue. So we'll move on. Yeah, we'll move on to this. The the news that came in this week: the six cyclists killed in two weeks in mm. London roads. And Boris Johnson's response was a little bit what people have called kind of victim blaming. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cyclists should be more careful and not wear headphones. Not wear headphones. As far as I'm aware, only one of the cyclists killed recently has been confirmed to have been wearing headphones while cycling. So it really is just, I mean, it's. I've seen other people's, uh, other um, conservative, I can't remember his name, but he's on the London Assembly, suggest that cyclists should be made to get insurance, as if having insurance is going to stop a, a truck from crushing you against a barrier. It's There's interesting things here. I mean, I, I cycle regularly around London, um, and I can sort of see both sides of this. It's very hostile out there on the roads. There's clearly a, a culture war going on between motorists and cyclists. Uh, and uh, as a regular cyclist, I, it does infuriate me when I see people whizzing through red lights, listening to their headphones, or or the opposite even actually, well, it doesn't infuriate me, but you see people cycling very cautiously and very badly, hugging the side, you know, being sort of too timid, whereas actually, you know, people do need to be aware mm-hmm. that you have to assert your space on the road, take up as much space as a car, and there are skills involved, of, for example, being able to look behind you, look over your shoulder without you know, weaving around, making eye contact with drivers, signalling clearly. And I, I can. The problem is there is a sort of a sort of Jeremy Clarksonism, you know, a sort of uber petrol head anti-cyclist cult that says these people are just like kind of mosquitoes that you have to bat away, which is irritating. But at the same time, 
you know, if you're on the road and you're using the road, you, there is, surely there is a responsibility to behave like a legitimate road there user. There is something that Andrew Gilligan's identified, this idea of kind of like macho cyclists and light collectors, and his point is, he's the cycling czar for London, is that what will make cycling safer is more people cycling, more different types of people cycling. So actually mm. you need to change the culture but, of cycling. But also, I mean, building decent infrastructure for it, because the cycle superhighways, these sort of designated special bike routes in and out of the centre of London that have been, well... I say built, but really in large part, they're just sort of extra wide cycle lanes on the existing roads and they're not segregated from normal traffic. Um, and there was actually, uh, for two cyclists who died last year, the inquiries into their deaths recently finished and they found that this was um, near the Bow Roundabout in East London, where two cycle, well, three or four cycles have died now, actually. Um, and the inquiries found that the design of these cycle superhighways gives cyclists the impression that uh, the most uh, sort of rational and commonsensical course of action, like the way that it guides you through the junction, it actually leads you to the most dangerous sort of location, which is right where trucks are going to be turning left. Well, and, so this is my you. question. Is, yeah. is London a particularly dangerous city for cyclists, or is it simply that there are more cyclists here and therefore... I, I, think, have... I, I think the infrastructure is simply lacking. I mean, but obviously more cyclists is going to mean more deaths. I'm sure there's... And you have to think yeah. about... The, I mean, this is a city that uh, has sort of grown up higgledy-piggledy from sort of small villages, got lots of narrow streets. It's not... You know, it, I can see how you, there might be a, a sort of non-political cultural topographical reason why London might be uniquely dangerous but there are also it's only going to get harder because people are going to cycle more transport is expensive uh, it's it's is the quickest way to get around very often um, there is an education issue here I mean I don't I think a lot of cyclists probably don't realize unless you sat in the cab of a big HGV mm. I don't think you appreciate how completely invisible you are even when you're slightly in front of it because there's the driver is so high up looking down they act they still can't see you so often so I mean you're not, not want to sound so pious about it but see a cyclist you know, you're on the road you're taking your life in your hands some kind of awareness mm. training for drivers and cyclists seems to be kind of a pretty obvious. I think you're absolutely right about the hostility though. I was in a, um, a cab going through Angel um, where a cyclist died quite recently and they, there was a police community support officer handing out stuff to cabbies about being aware about this and my cabbie stopped and had a proper row with the police community support officer about how much he thought you should tell the, you should be telling the cyclist this mate because there is this real like it's, it's now got to a stage where both sides feel that the other one is, is more at fault but Clearly, mm. cyclists are the ones who are, yeah, who are dying. The, the, the problem with that is that the cyclists are the ones that don't have the protective metal shell. So yeah. they're the ones who will get killed in this sort of war, if you, if you want to call it a war. But you know, it's a bit of a shame we have to call it something like that. But what could be done then, practically? What um, be- well, for instance, the Bow Roundabout. I mean, a lot of people have been dying on the Cycles Superhighway 2, which is going goes out through via Bow and Stratford. And that is actually, I mean, whilst the centre of London is very higgledy-piggledy and has narrow streets, when you go out sort of east and, and, and around the suburbs of London, you get very wide avenues, actually. Um, and it would be quite easy to introduce segregated cycle pathways there. And that is something that is now going to happen. It does feel rather like it's it's coming too late now, and it was obvious. And cycle campaign has been calling this for a long time. And it seems like now it's kind of going to be done. So that's going to help, absolutely. Um, also, I, I mean, I don't want... I don't think having t- licenses for cycling is necessary, but you know, offer it. It wouldn't help. It wouldn't hurt if TfL offered tests. You know? Yeah, see, I think actually, is it? I want. I don't know the answer to this, but is it unreasonable to think that you are you're on the road, you are part of the traffic? Yes, you're the more vulnerable side of it, but you can still mm. you know plow into a pedestrian or cause an accident. 
um, that you, there's some qualification or something you have to go, some hoop you have to jump through that will make it clear that you've mm. understood the risks and you've understood the dangers you might be posing indirectly to other people before you're allowed to take your vehicle on the road. I mean, every other road user kind of has to go through that. Is it so unfair to expect cyclists to do the same? And I'm mm. a cyclist and I say that. that yeah, but that's interesting because I, I don't cycle because I, for example, the, the reason that I don't want to, to die. And I know I was on, mm. I was talking about this on the Sunday Politics with Andrew Neil, and he doesn't cycle anymore because he had a really bad accident in New York. Um, and I think that there is a problem. It's whether about whether or not you make it compulsory or not. I would really appreciate going mm. on a cycling proficiency test if they still do that. If you're allowed to take one of those as an adult, what one? I think I'm sure you are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do also wonder about people. Um, I don't know how long ago. I know um, uh, I was in the car with my dad the other week, and he had no idea that you weren't allowed to park in the boxes at the traffic lights that have the bikes on the ground, like. The early start boxes for cyclists, which are at every junction in London. He passed his test, of course, in the 70s, so he has no idea that this thing is a thing. And I wonder how many drivers are aware that I'm, as a, of I'm, this new infrastructure. I'm, uh, maybe other cyclists, London cyclists listening to this will disagree. I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised how, how relatively well honoured those boxes are, actually. Mm. I find it, most of the time you can get through the traffic and when you're waiting and then get in front. But the key thing is to position yourself very clearly in front yeah. of the, the traffic to... I and mean, that's what, what, what sort of stimulates this culture war in a way, because the safest way to cycle is to be slightly obnoxious about it in terms of asserting yeah. your position. You know, putting your hand up to say to people, stop, I'm coming through, or you're making eye contact. You know, you're, 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 often you're in a state of sort of adrenaline fueled kind of yeah. fight or flight reaction anyway. So it's easy to see how it, how it gets interpreted as it, cyclists being the aggressors. It can actually. be a difficult position to be in where something like jumping a red light can be the safest course of action, but that can occasionally happen. Um, but I think you make a good point about driving licences and actually this has been a really rapid change. I, I, if you look at the statistics for how much cycle use in London has changed even mm. in the last five years, let alone ten years, you're talking about a lot of people who took a driving test once and then haven't updated their skills as yeah. road use has changed enormously around them. Mm. But fi one final point, we mentioned HGVs earlier. You were saying um, earlier that there was there was some talk about whether or not they could be banned. From yeah, um, because they are overwhelmingly the, the cause. Them and buses, but I mean bus drivers I know undergo special training to deal with cyclists, whereas HGV drivers won't. Um, TfL produces these like awareness videos where, um, as we talk about, like uh, you, you'll have like, an HGV from one side of the screen, they'll turn, like pan the camera around, and you'll see twenty cyclists down the left-hand side, and in the mirror, like that is not visible to the HGV driver. Um, and yeah, it might so make sense. You can fit eleven cyclists in the blind spot of an HGV. Yeah, so it, it might make sense to um, you know ban large deliveries via HGV from central London before ten p.m. or something, you know, or or seven p.m. I don't know, but because um, most people who are going to be commuting, are, most people who are cycling are probably going to be commuting. Um, so keeping the two types of traffic away from each other as possible might make sense and I'll end it on that note thank you very much to Ian and Rath thank you a report came in this week of a man in New Zealand who had died from um, a post-drug era infection he was infected with a bacteria that was resistant to every known antibiotic I'm joined by Ian Stebbin, our science blogger, and Sophie McBain. Hello, Sophie. First time on the podcast. Um, to talk about this kind of the frightening new future. So, Sophie, I know you've talked to lots of people about um, malaria and how that's become resistant to the drugs. Um, can you tell us a bit about, about that? 
Yeah, well, what's happened is that in Southeast Asia, they've been um, noticing since 2006 that it's taking longer and longer to treat patients with artemisinin, which is the best known drug for malaria. And in some parts of Southeast Asia now, those drugs just don't work anymore. And thankfully, there are a few drugs you can still use, but they're really, really expensive. Um, and what happened, and um, this has happened before, it happened in the 1950s, and drug-resistant malaria spread from Southeast Asia across to Africa, and doctors th think that overall malaria deaths increased by 25%. And just to put that into perspective, 660,000 people die from malaria every year. 660,000. 660,000 yeah, every year. Two-thirds of a million. That's an incredibly large amount. So malaria is a, a parasite, right? So it's how complicated is the regime for treating people? Um, well, it should be really quite simple. Um, so you go on a course of antibiotics for about a week and um, doctors have been monitoring how these malaria parasites that are transferred by mosquitoes go down in a person's blood. And so that's how they've noticed that resistance is building up. Um, and they don't really know why this has happened in Southeast Asia on both occasions. Um, they think it could be something to do with the mosquitoes there. They have a kind of slightly di different genetic makeup that means it's more likely that there are going to be changes in the parasites um, that make them resistant to the antibiotics. But I suppose, I mean, to, to try and put like, a slightly optimistic spin on it, there are, at least in malaria studies, a lot of other avenues of research that are open, for example, they're looking into sterilisation of mosquitoes. But this is a much wider problem, isn't it, Ian, in that if yeah. antibiotics... We think antibiotics, if you lost them, you wouldn't be able to treat infections, but it's it's a lot bigger than that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's you look at the, the world before antibiotics and just getting a little scratch that gets infected or, um, you know, just very innocuous infections can become fatal very quickly. So I want to um, do kind of straw poll. Have you had anything that in the pre-antibiotic pre era would have killed you? Because I'm pretty sure that I had a I had a skin infection that would have would have killed me. I'm I not sure. I've, I've never really been seriously ill ever, so... Yeah. But, but that's because I think there's I think there's a really interesting thing if you talk about I think there's a Chris Hitchens article where he talks about this if if you ask sort of ten people that you meet in the street have you ever had anything that you cure with antibiotics that yeah. that was sufficiently serious you would be just staggered by the number of people mm. in, in your life who but wouldn't that, be there anymore. That's kind of the problem though is the number of people who've had antibiotics given to them for certain, for various things. I mean we've become so reliant on them. Um, but they're only like one tool, and they um, obviously penicillin was the first one to be developed. But that, within 10 years, a lot of infections that we were treating with, it became resistant. And over the years, uh, the gap between developing a new antibiotic and it and the stuff it's meant, the bacteria it's meant to treat becoming resistant to it, that gap has shrinked, uh, shrunk to the, to the extent that the most recent ones developed in the last 10 years or so. Um, it's a matter of months before resistant strains emerge. Um, and that's a big problem because it means that you don't make your money from it. And drugs companies, I mean, cost upward of a billion dollars to develop a new antibiotic. So the drug companies, I mean, there are like three or four in development right now, and that's it. Um, we used to have like over four, 500 antibiotics that we can use. Um, and all those healthcare stories of sort of superbugs in hospitals like MRSA or whatever, which... Um, can't those are the kind of things that will become more common and hospitals of course are breeding grounds for germs so um 
No. So this was the thing that uh, interested me is there's a piece by Marion McKenna um, on, on Medium and she's written a book about this and it wasn't just the infection. So she talked about the fact that you would no longer be able to do transplant surgery mm. because that relies on suppressing the immune system, which then relies on you being able to cure all the things that you will get as a result of suppressing the immune system. Um, it would have enormous repercussions for food productions because we pump livestock full of antibiotics. And um, the same thing happens in, in agriculture. So it's not just purely about, which would be bad enough, the fact that you will go into hospital and more and more people won't come out because mm. they'll, they'll have something. It's about looking at the entire way that our food chain and all the things that we that we kind of take for granted are no longer there. And yeah. we might look back on this as this kind of hundred years, like a very lucky hundred year pause yeah. in the history of, of this arms race between humans and the bacteria and parasites. It has so many ramifications. Um, 80% of animals receive antibiotics from farmers who basically want them to grow faster and bigger um, and so they can make more money. And if you stop giving them that, you would sort of massively increase the cost of meat um, in developed countries, which would be another side effect. There are all these little knock-on effects you'd get from not being able to use antibiotics anymore. Um, which would really change how society works. So my question is, is Sophie, perhaps you can answer this, how worried are the people that you talk to? How, how, because it's one of those things I think I feel like on the same order of climate change in that it's almost too terrifying that it would make, it, it, you know, we're very, we can deal with small specific problems that you can see a single solution to. We can't, it's very hard to grasp huge international cataclysms. And all the people who work in development, how seriously are they taking this? Um, well, it's actually very interesting because the frontline scientists who are working in these small malaria clinics on the Thai-Burma border are really, really scared. And they're saying, if we want to stop this spreading, we have to take really serious steps like screening people in airports, like mass treating the population with anti-malarial drugs. But they say that WHO and the big health NGOs aren't really taking it seriously enough and they're too scared to take this really radical reaction, uh, uh, radical action. Um, and they've also accused WHO, well a group of scientists have, of medical malpractice from the first time that, um, anti, that drug resistant malaria spread um, across Africa. So there's a really big divide between the kind of small operators on the front line and then the big international health NGOs and particularly WHA. And that's also interesting when you look at things like vaccinations because there's more and more of a backlash against the idea of, of those NGOs, the idea that polio vaccinations are kind of, you know, they're, they're sort of, there's kind of urban myths and conspiracy theories that grow up about them and there's been assassinations of, of polio workers, haven't there, as well? Yeah, and I think the other thing as well with this whole debate is that a lot has fo a lot of the kind of risk about why drug resistance is spreading is focused on the fact that people in the West use um, antibiotics too much. But the other really big problem is substandard drugs. And so you have kind of drug companies in China and in parts of Asia producing drugs that just don't really function. And so that really increases the chance of resistance if you go on a, you buy the kind of cheaper fake antibiotics Chinese antibiotic and it doesn't fully kill whatever's which is kind of incredible because I was reading that um, Alexander Fleming in his Nobel Prize for Medicine acceptance speech 10 years after the discovery of this uh, said already warned that the best way to in induce kind of resistance was to give a weak version of a drug and actually some of my family are doctors if you talk to any GP the one thing that they well not lots of things make GPs angry but <laughs> one of them is the fact that that people want demand antibiotics for things that like for viruses for like the colds mm. and stuff like that uh, or they come in and they take it and they have a 14-day course of antibiotics they feel better after five and stop taking it 
which is the kind of classic way for this to do. So, Ian, I mean, is there are there are we going to see more kind of we had the return of the public information film? Is there an awareness campaign? I know there was a book written by um, the former chief medical examiner last yes, year. Yes, that, that a lot of health authorities around the world have started sounding alarm about this because it looks like the only way to fix it is massive public investment in research because there's just no profit in it. Um, you can kind of compare it to say developing AIDS remedies and things like that where the people most affected are poor so there's not as much money in it but uh, which means that drug companies don't focus perhaps as much attention as they as they could um, but we kind of the, the sort of massive social ramifications are difficult there are I mean it people it, it is possible that we could develop a lot more antibiotics if we invest a lot in it we don't know yet because we haven't done the research but there are also other tools that we can use to become desperate um, there are these things called uh, bacteriophages which the Soviet Union used to use and they're basically cocktails of viruses that attack bacteria that you eat. Um, and the Soviet Union used those for decades uh, quite successfully. Problem is they're difficult to use. You have to sort of individually tailor them to each patient based upon what they've got inside them and their own sort of makeup and things. The other trouble with that is that that reminds me very much of like, I don't know, using mixed mitosis to cure the rabbit problem in Australia. Yeah. Or what New Zealand did, and funny come back to New Zealand, when they had a problem with um, rats eating the kiwis, is they introduced the brush-tailed possum. And then it turned out that the brush-tailed possum found rats rather too hard to eat and decided they would also eat the kiwis. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the problems about, it, is, yeah. this is, we have to kind of rethink how we view this. Instead of it being a kind of cure, we have to rethink about it, it being a constant arms race of, of evolution yeah. between what we can do versus the kind of the other side on the, the, on the bacteria. The cost, the cost of having health healthcare and like the cost of having life expectancies 80 years plus is that we have to, I, I think, accept spending a huge amount of, our wealth on sort of maintaining those arms yeah. and making sure that we stay one step ahead. And then ahead. it's not a fixed problem. Yeah. It's, it's an ongoing struggle. Um, well, thank you very much, Sophie and Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, available every week from iTunes and newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil and the underscore orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. The podcast is produced by Philip Maud.